celebrating classics and creating new ones. Only on the Music Vibes Podcast. Now, here's your host, DC Hendrix. And welcome in. This is the Music Vibes Podcast brought to you by 1039 The Bear Mix 106. Today's fresh mix of R&B and old school. Big 92.3, Four Wayne's Greatest Hits. It's a pleasure to be back with y'all with another edition of this fantastic podcast as 2021 is almost over. And of course, we'll be looking back at the year that was all the best music. Of course, that'll be coming up in a couple of weeks as we look back at the best of 2021. But of course, for this episode, as you've read the description, we're going to be talking to, we're going to be talking with an award winning author. His name is Torre, and you used to watch him on television, CE, CNN, MTV, BET. He's been everywhere, and he wrote this fantastic book, Nothing Compares to You, An Oral History of Prince. A very deep dive into the legacy, career, and life of the one and only Prince, who goes down in history as one of the greatest to ever do it. The one and only Prince. When I was uh, 16, I was completely broke and needed to go get a job, so I got the Yellow Pages out and I couldn't find one thing that I wanted to do. So I decided I was going to push as hard as I could to be a musician and win at it, you know. One of the things that we try to do, though, is wait until we have other songs that go together with our favorites. Uh, That's why it takes a long time to come out with albums these days. Now, Prince is someone that I've always known about his music growing up. And, you know, as my career in music has broadened and gotten much bigger throughout the years, I've always, in the point of this podcast even, is to celebrate classics and create new ones. So talking about these legends that I wasn't personally around to see in person, I have no choice but to dig deep and research about these artists and their music. But for Prince, all I had to do was read this book. If you want to purchase this book, it's in the description. You got the link right there. Go ahead and click it and purchase this book. It is a must read. Whether you're a fan of Prince or not, you are definitely going to enjoy this book. And when you read it, you'll find out exactly why Prince is looked at as one of the greatest, if not the greatest of all time. So when we're talking about Prince, my personal favorite album of Prince that he's ever released is the debut 1979 self-titled. It starts off with I want to be your lover. I love the way it starts. I love I feel for you. Some deep cuts on there. Sexy dancer. Why you want to treat me so bad? I love that debut. But obviously he went on to make fantastic albums all the way throughout the 80s. By the way. Every year, a new album. 79, he had self-titled. 1980, he had Dirty Mind. 1981, he had Controversy. 1982, he had the album 1999. Took a year off in 83, but in 1984, bounced right back with what's looked at as probably one of the greatest albums and movies of all time, Purple Rain. 1985, Around the World in a Day. 86, Parade. 87, Sign of the Times. 1988, Love Sexy. 1989, the Batman soundtrack. The albums just keep coming and coming. And throughout the years, there's a big reason why many think that Prince is the greatest to ever do it. We're going to dig a little bit deeper with the author of this new book on Prince. Here's the author in my chat with Toure. It's a pleasure to be joined by this next guest of mine, Toure. He is an author um, of this fantastic book on Prince, where we dig into pretty much everything in his life behind the scenes, musically, and everything, but I grew up watching this man on television, so I just want to go off and welcome you to this podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and get into it. You know, um, let's let's start off 
with exactly where people, because I know I remember watching you on television back in the day. I used to watch BET, um, MTV, you know, watching you on TV. But so where can you know, where could have people have seen you on TV and all of your other work in the past? What what leads you here to today? Um, wow. I mean, you know, I um, I was a correspondent on CNN talking about popular culture. I was a host on BET. Um, I did uh, the black carpet and uh, a general sort of interview show that led me to interview R. Kelly, Jay-Z and Nas together, T.I., um, some other, you know, major figures in the, in the culture, um, went to Fuse and did some significant interviews there and a show about hip hop. Um, I did an interview with Lady Gaga there, did two interviews actually with Gaga there. And, um, I don't know if you know, it's kind of funny when, when last year, when COVID was really, you know, had us. Hot, staying in the house and all that sort of thing. There was this meme going around on TikTok of people quoting Gaga saying, you know, like club, bus, train, another <laughs> club, another club. That was Gaga talking to me, right? I was like, like, how did you get to be so famous? And it was like, you know, just grinding, just going club, club, bus, train, <laughs> another club, another club. Um, so it's funny to see that kind of blow up on its own years after we've done that. Um, went from there to MSNBC for several years, was hosting a show called The Cycle there, um, talking about politics and you know what's going on and what was going on in America in the uh, second half of the Obama presidency. And um, you know, I've written several books. You know, part of what came up within that, I was always writing for magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a long time ago, somebody asked me to go write a cover story on Prince and uh, for Icon Magazine, which does not exist anymore. The other journalists who were there did not have cover stories. So for them to get like a 15 or 20 minute interview was totally sufficient for their stories. But for a cover story, you need much more than that you know you need at least 45 minutes you know you need some time to like be around the person hang out with them to see them so you can have some color and um you know i got a 15 to 20 minute interview like everybody else and i came out and i was like i have a cover story this is not enough and they said uh you know i said well can i email him some questions this was early in the days of email and everybody's email address was really long and <laughs> they said, sure. And uh, I know, I, you know, I, email even then was impermanent. I don't know why I didn't keep this, but uh, I emailed him 10 questions, emailed back seven and he wrote in, in the way that you would think in terms of using, uh, you know, the letter U for you, the word you and a symbol of an I and, um, so it felt like it was really him. I'm, I, you know, I feel certain it was very, it was really, really him. And um, he answered seven of the ten questions. I don't remember what the first nine were, but the tenth question was, "Will you play basketball with me?" <laughs> and he said, "Anytime, brother." And I wow. was like, "Well, you said yes." 
And so when we had the photo shoot, I went with the photographer, uh, unscheduled, back to with them to Paisley. And as they're doing the photo shoot, I'm there with my basketball and my sneakers. Like you said, you you said anytime. So here we go. Was ready What's to up? hoop. Was really good. Not thinking this is really going to work. It was just like you know, who knows? Let's just try. And after a while, he was like, he said to his his assistant, "Yo, get out the sneakers." And I was like, "Oh my god, this is really going to happen." And Next thing I know, we went around the corner, Paisley Park. There was a little hoop. And I mean, it's a regulation size hoop. You know, we played ball for, you know, a good 30 some minutes, you know, one on one and two on two, um, where he and I were partner, were teammates. And, um, and it was dope. And I think the story had more resonance because it wasn't the normal you know, music focused. It wasn't, you know, this sort of hagiography about, about, about Paisley Park. You know, it had this, this, this recurring uh, notion of playing basketball with him. And, you know, so a lot of people in his world noticed that story where, you know, some of the other stories might have gone under the radar or whatever. So, you know, over the 10 or 15 years after that, you know, I just became better and better friends with the people I knew who were in this universe and the people who and meeting more and more people in this universe and not really trying to do this, but just I had questions just as a Prince fan would call somebody, a musician I knew, a, you know, a girlfriend I knew, a manager I knew. And Mm -hmm. my knowledge and understanding of him is deepening and deepening. And, you know, just meeting more and more people in his world. Um, And so finally, I wrote a book um, several years ago uh, that came to be called I Would Die For You, which looked at the relationship between Prince and Generation X and explored why he was an icon for Generation X. And, you know, that book was actually started out as a series of lectures that I gave at Harvard um, about that subject and then turned it into a book. And the people in his world really liked and appreciated and respected the book. And that led to, you know, even more of them talking to me about him and, you know, did a podcast about two years ago about him. Um, that was called Who Was Prince? It's an eight-episode docu-series that you can find, you know, wherever you get podcasts now. And as I was doing that podcast, I met a lot of people. I learned a lot. And I said, you know, there's a lot here that could make up a book that would be entirely different than the podcast. And so then I started, you know, fashioning it into a book and, uh, you know, fashioning the material I had into a book and talking to even more people. Because, you know, 10 people, you ask them, like, hey, can you introduce me to one person? And then you know 20 people. And you ask some <laughs> of them, then you know 25, 30 people. And so, you know, met new people, had new conversations. And, you know, when you know one piece, you can ask somebody about the second piece, yep. which then you can ask somebody else about the third piece and go back to the first person 
about the third piece, and they'll tell you the fourth piece, and then your knowledge is building and growing and growing and exponentializing. And so it just was a, like a lot of time over many years inside the Prince world, you know, getting to know his folks, getting to know the story of him while he was alive, after he passed. And, um, you know, this book is the product of about 20 years of being around Prince people, talking to them, mm -hmm. asking them questions and hearing amazing stories about this life. And that's what brings us to nothing compares to you. I mean, what a first of all, what a cover. I mean, fantastic cover is just immediately brings the Prince vibes to it. Now, before we even get down to the nitty gritty and talk about the book, I got to ask. So a lot of people my age may not be very familiar with the discography of Prince as much as we are, probably. Um, and a lot of people will know him from the Dave Chappelle skit. And obviously a lot of people seen that skit with Charlie Murphy and they was playing some ball and they said Prince can hoop. I mean, obviously he played back in the day, but that was my first question. It was, was the hype real with Prince on the court? Oh, he was a def definitely a good player. Absolutely a good player. Uh, played a lot in high school, was on the high school basketball team, um, took it very seriously, continued to play throughout his 20s and 30s and 40s in terms of, you know, whenever the band had a, a moment um, and this was a way to blow off steam and to stay in shape. And so, you know, he and Des Dickerson and Andre Simone um, loved playing basketball. A lot of girlfriends talked about, you know, a first date or a second date involved partly or largely playing basketball. Um, <laughs> so, you know, definitely a big part of his life. You know, the guy, as soon as you started dribbling, he was clearly very comfortable and, 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 and you know, at home on the court, um, you know, dribbling through the legs, behind the back, you know, the <laughs> moves, you know, the form of his jump shot. I mean, it's very silky and smooth on the court. The form of the jump shot was very similar to, let's say, Steph Curry's form. Uh -huh. I'm not saying that he was as good a shooter as Steph Curry. No, nobody in history is as good as Steph Curry. But the form looked like that. And I believe Des Dickerson, I heard Des Dickerson say that um, separate from my recollection of the, like Des and I have never talked about that. I heard in some interview Des saying like, he kind of shot in the way that Steph Curry shot. And, wow. you know, basically I think Steph Curry has perfect textbook form. And I say that to say Prince had, you know, like perfect form. I think when you get into, you know, the street ball, you know, amateur context, people shoot all kinds of ways because they kind of figured out how to shoot on their own. Right, whatever works um, for them. But some people shoot really properly because they put in the time and the effort to, you know, have their jump shot be, you know, the elbow and the wrist and the flip, you know, all that <laughs> sort of stuff. And Prince had all that. He looked really smooth, um, you know, with the ball and without the ball. He wasn't, he wasn't the sort of player who would just stand there when he didn't have the ball. He would be moving around without the ball, trying to get open. Um, you know, definitely one to, you know, hoist up, you know, a mid-range shot, you know, uh, you know, maybe take it from further away, you know, or <laughs> attack the basket, go for a layup. 
um, you know, definitely loved the, loved the game, loved Michael Jordan, huge Bulls fan, very good player. In spite of being really short, a very good player. That is awesome. Yeah, I always wanted to know if his if his hype was real. I know he used to play back in the day, so I thought I thought that was a good place to start. But I definitely want to start off as you mentioned how smooth he was on the court. Obviously, he was just as just as if not more smooth on the stage, of course, throughout these years of his performances. But as you mentioned in this book, which I got to know a whole lot more about, you know, obviously I know Prince and his music, all the hits throughout the years. But admittedly, with my age, I didn't know a whole lot about, you know, Prince before here. Um, And I'm also a big Rick James fan. So that always it's it's always like, you know, that kind of feud that they had even back then where they're trying to outdo each other. It was like, yeah, well, for me, it was always I always knew more about Rick James. But what you did in this book earlier in the beginning, I think it was chapter two. you, You know, you really got into his teenage years and how things went before. I mean, the fame hit. Um, and I wanted to kind of highlight that and give you give you the floor on how exactly, you know, Prince came up even before his music. Well, I mean, you know, this is a guy who left his parents, left his mother's home, went to live with his father. His father kicks him out. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I go into much more detail on why those things happened, but it left him with a burning desire to prove to his parents that they were wrong that he was an important person, that they should not have abandoned him. So throughout his teens, he is completely driven and working his butt off to become a rock star. And the goal is not simply to become a musician, but to become a rock star. And people talk about all he thought about, all he talked about, all he did was play music. He would do a multi-hour rehearsal with whatever band or with whatever ever guys he was rocking with um you know during that rehearsal period he would not take breaks if they would go out and you know drink something or smoke something he would just stay at the kit and continue to play drums or continue to play bass or whatever it was um and then as soon as that rehearsal would end he would leave and drive home and you know to where he was living and play his own rehearsal by himself for hours. So this is a person who just burned through um, all the hours that are necessary to become a master very rapidly from the age of 13 to 17 or so. And, you know, everybody was like, you know, I was the most talented and the most driven person that I, that anybody in my crew or my extended circle had ever heard of. And then I met Prince and it was like, well, damn, we can't keep up with that level of drive. We can't keep up with that level of focus. Um, You know, the guy is voraciously expanding in terms of mastering the bass, the guitar, the drums, the keyboards, like, damn. Um, You know, and just, you know, working working it out as a songwriter. I think critically around 17, um, he meets a studio owner and, you know, Prince convinces him to let him have a set of keys. And then he's basically living in the studio and trying to figure out and figuring out every bit of what it is to work in the studio and what every knob and whatever does. Mm -hmm. Um, Because this is a person who did not 
use producers. When he gets to be 19, 20, 21, et cetera, and he's making these you know, amazing albums, he's doing these albums all by himself. He may have an engineer, he usually has an engineer, but he doesn't have a producer. And he doesn't, he doesn't sort of sit in the studio and fiddle around and think about like, well, what are we gonna do here? And should we do this? No, he comes in the studio, he knows what he wants to do. He's finishing a song in a day, maybe 36 hours, but quite wow. often within the 24 hour period, the song is done, mastered, finished. This is highly uh, irregular. Nobody does this to finish a song a day. It's mastered. It's done. Um, no, nobody does this. But he's doing this day after day after day for years. Um, you know, when he, when he, when the when the 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 studio owner introduced him to a manager, and the and he plays him a, a tape, and he's like, yeah, this kid. He's a teenager. He did all the songs he wrote and performed and sang all the songs. And the guy was like, no, that can't be. So like, we have to sh show you, right? So then the manager's like, oh my God, this is real. Goes to the labels. Like, so this kid did, and they're like, no, there's no way like one person did all. They're like, believe, trust me, you got to see it. So then they see it. And like, you know, people were like, you know, they're calling him like the new Stevie Wonder because it was like, he can do every part of what is necessary to create great songs. Um, and, and, you know, throughout his 20s, he's growing and he's coming and he's making it happen and he's building. And it's, you know, it's, it's the first couple albums were, you know, small, but they're hits, you know, Dirty Mind, it gets bigger. Um, you know, and it's an interesting thing because from the beginning, Prince said, I don't want to be just um, an artist for black fans. I love my black fans, but I want access to everything. And part of what he was doing was fighting against the segregation of the music industry, because yeah. the music industry was um, looking at the world as black artists and, you know, white and the black artists are for black fans. And so they will get smaller budgets they'll get smaller tours they'll get smaller everything and the white artists who they were getting behind would get the bigger budgets and prince is like well i'm here to become a global gigantic rock star so i want that i want the bigger budgets i want the global tours i want you know not just to do soul train i want to do american bandstand which was dick clark's show um you know which was not a rejection it was it was an addition it was i want everything um and so as he's coming through the 80s, the music is getting more and more open to other people and, the, and other people are joining in the party. So before we get to Purple Rain, the band is saying to me, you know, controversy in 1999, you know, we would perform, let's say through the South to 80% mm -hmm. black houses. And then we would be asked to come back, you know, like do these towns again as these singles are hitting on rock radio and white people are like, yo, this is the man. And the <laughs> audiences are getting whiter and whiter, which is not to say they're better, but just the audiences grow it, you know, and more and more people are getting interested in listening to Prince. Um, and, you know, it's, um, 
it's 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 growing and growing and growing. And you know, by the time we get to Purple Rain, you know, you have somebody who puts out a movie about his life. Yep. At the same time as an amazing album. And now let's be real, the movie is okay. The movie could be campy at times. It could be forgettable, except there's an amazing group of songs that are performed in and, and, and originated in the movie. Um, and not just performed in the sense of played, but performed in the sense of somebody's on stage performing these songs. So the performance footage is legendary. And the right. songs, of course, are legendary. So it's almost like going to Purple Rain is almost like going to a Prince concert. Um, Pretty much. So that takes a, takes the movie to a whole other level. And the movie becomes this gigantic phenomenon. And that launches him to the upper stratosphere of, of global performers. Yeah, and what you talked about in the story, one of my personal favorite parts of it was you getting the stories about, like, one example where... I think the saxophone player left or something. This is before he could play the saxophone. And they said he he literally sat there and taught himself how to play the saxophone so they could finish the track. Like stuff like that, you know, just talking about, um, and I'll let you elaborate a little bit more on exactly, you know, how he approached, you know, his artist his artistry inside the studio. Well, yeah, I mean, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't learn how to play, um, horns because that's something there's something different there fundamentally different there in terms of the embouchure the way that you uh the, the lips that are required to play horns that's a whole other thing it takes years mm-hmm. to basically twist your lips to be able to get the perfect sound out of horns so he then you know but he can pick up a horn and play it badly and get <laughs> the idea of what he wanted on to the tape, but he really needed the horn players to really access that part of it, but everything else he could do. And so this is a guy who comes into the studio, the song is already written. He, you know, goes and lays down each of the parts that he has to lay down. Um, and he's just sort of racing through. They never had to wait for him to get the execution right. The execution is always right. The ideas are already there, you know, even like where he had to do like weird things, quote unquote, weird things like he coughs or whatever. Um, He kind of already knows what he wants to do with those sorts of things. And then when it came time to, uh, you know, to lay down the vocals, everybody had to leave. He would do that alone. If there was anybody around engineer, whoever, you can't really watch him do his vocals because he. He wanted to get into it, get a little ugly with it. You know, he's like, you can't, can't grit it. You can't get a pretty vocal with a pretty face. You know, you got to kind of ugly it up. Um, <laughs> and, you know, one thing he would do also is he spent a lot of time on the background vocals in terms of let me make sure that they are unique. So it wasn't just that he recorded a background vocal and then tripled it or quadrupled it like some people do. Each one sounds a little different each one has its own personality and flavor like there's three different people back there doing the vocal doing the background vocals so that's pretty incredible of him so you know he's 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 doing he's racing i, I want to say racing 
he's moving rapidly through the studio day by day and creating all this music. And it's interesting because quite often the next album is done before you've heard the, you know, so I always thought, because Purple Rain is this epic rock and roll sort of opera, mm -hmm. right? And then uh, Around the World in a Day, which follows it, is, is, is beautiful and amazing, but it's, it's somehow like smaller in scope and, and it sort of like outlines this sort of utopia and there's this sweetness to it where Purple Rain is very egotistical. Um, and, I, and I love them both, but they're, they're fundamentally different. And, and, and as an outsider to this world, the Prince world, I always thought around the world in a day is his response to becoming super famous in that, okay, now we're going to talk about, you know, utopia and values and a little more loneliness and love. And, you know, no, around the world in a day is completed before Purple Rain comes out. He's not Crazy. responding to fame. This is where his head is at. Wendy and Lisa had brothers who were around, who were musicians and composers, who wrote a song, played it for Prince. He loved it. And that became the inspiration and the mood um, that led him to the next album. Um, not so it wasn't really external things. One of the things that he talked about when I interviewed him was in his mind, the album is a success when it comes out. It does not require, um, you know, it doesn't require the critics. It doesn't require the fans responding mm -hmm. in a certain way. It's merely that the, that he has finished the album. That alone means it's a success to him. And, you know, I thought for a creative person, that was a really powerful way of looking at things um, to say that, you know, like, you know, I decide if it's a success That's right. uh, that, that I have finished it, I have decided it's done and I have released it rather than needing external validation. Yeah, I loved every bit of that. And that's partly of what makes I mean, that also adds to his legacy. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about his legacy right now. And kind of dig deeper into your personal taste, because I always love to ask people their personal favorite album from Prince, because mine is always I don't get really get laughed at. But mine is always so different because I'm the only person that's favorite album of Prince's is the debut. But they always 
Yes, I, I love I love self-titled debut. Really? Yes, yes. <laughs> and I think it was just the rawness behind it, and plus, like, it starts off with "I want to be your lover." You? I think that you know it just starts off. I mean, just so the energy's up. I love the you know the instruments behind it, the rawness in that album, and it's always so different because everyone always says "1999," uh, "Purple Rain." They always say those, and then I come with the debut. And people always give me the side eye. And I know we're on audio right now, but if people could see the eye that you gave me, they would understand. A little bit of a side eye. I mean, uh, you know, look, it's it's a great album. I think that he develops into something much more uh, complex as he goes along. Um, Hard to say one. You know, for me, you know... You know, I mean, Dirty Mind is very powerful. Yes. Under the Cherry Moon is very, very compelling. Um, Sign of the Times is deeply compelling. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to choose one. You know, I love Around the World in a Day. Um, somewhere in there, I mean, Sign of the Times is so powerful and expansive and amazing and beautiful and, you know, um, it's 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 this gorgeous achievement, and um, you know, and I I almost see colors when I hear that album. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I mean, under the cherry moon is extraordinary. There's so many. It's very it's very difficult to pick one when they are so different. You know, Dirty Mind is giving you this almost punk new wave energy. You know, Purple Rain is giving this straight rock and roll energy, you know, um, you know, under the cherry moon is very jazzy and artful. Um, you know, sign of the times is much more, you know, like R and B and soul and funk. Chances girlfriend came across a needle and soon she did the same. At home there were 17 year old boys and their idea of fun is being in a gang called the Disciples High on Crack, toting a machine gun. When he's rocking in so many different contexts, you know, it's hard to choose one because he's hitting me so many different parts of of me. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, it sounds like you got the same that my dad does. My dad always tells me sign of the times. It says number one. It's, you know, and I always, he did the same thing when I told him that. And that was actually the first Prince album I bought was that that debut. And I was, I'm looking through the Prince crate and I'll never forget the guy at the record store's face as I'm looking through these. And he's like, you know, you know can I help you? I was like, yeah, I really need some prints. You know, I got this record collection last year for Christmas. I got a record player, so I got a collection going. And I realized I don't have any prints. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, we got plenty of prints. We got pretty much, you know, everything he's released right here. And I come out with that debut, and he looks at me like, "That that's the one? Like, it, out of all of them, that's the one? I, you know what? I just, I don't know. I, I've always resonated with that first one. It, plus, I guess it was the first one I heard too because i remember telling my dad like i had never heard prince when i was like a teenager i was like 15 and you know he's i'm looking through his record collection at this time and i'm like you know didn't know who prince was i pulled a prince record out i think it was 1999 and i'm like what is this and my dad's like you know almost disowned me when i told him that i I never heard it and he's like uh-uh you about to sit down right now and we're gonna start from the beginning and we gonna listen to Prince. He had pretty much all of them at that point, I think. And he started me from the beginning, and I was a fan. First song, I Want to Be a Lover, on the debut, I was like, why have I not heard this? So maybe that's why. It was just the first one I heard. You know, and I understand that. I understand that. Um, you know, the first one you hear is going to have trying to defend uh, myself an impression here. on you. I get that. I get that. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, look, you know, I, I think it's a solid choice. I think that he becomes more complex as the as the years go on as this relationship to the studio goes Mm -hmm. on you know i think that it's i think a lot of artists their first album is their best album um and you know or or their second album is their best album and they're starting to trail off after that it's unusual to have somebody really rising through the first five or six and then go to another plateau <laughs> after that. Um, you know, especially when he's coming up with albums year after year, it takes years for it most does. people to figure out, you know, 12 songs that make sense that are, you know, rocking. And even then, even the greats, most of the songs are going to be meh. You know, to do an album where there's, you know, eight, nine, ten songs that are great. You know, Prince is doing this over and over and over and over. Um, I mean, I think this is perhaps from, say, from Dirty Mind to, uh, you know, to the Symbol album, you know, and definitely to, to, to Sign of the Times. This is the greatest string, like the greatest string of albums. Like, give me anybody else. Here's, you know, 10 years or 12 years, whatever it is, 12 albums, including a double album, and 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 put that up against what Prince did in that period. Like, come on. So so if Who, I was to, so if I was to do this that? to you, you know, and I was to bring up Stevie the name Wonder, Michael Jackson, maybe, what, does, what does that mean? Michael Jackson comes out with a far smaller body of work in that period of time, right? He's coming out once every three, four years, where Prince is coming out every year. Um, to me, I think, you know, just considering the solo career, the adult career, um, Off the Wall is an extraordinary achievement, right? One of the great albums of all time. I think 
Thriller is far lesser of a musical achievement than Off the Wall. Okay. Um, Thriller is solid, but, you know, it's very poppy. It's very much meant for global consumption, which then is going to hit music super fans less. Um, It doesn't, you know, I'm not saying it's not a great album, but it doesn't have the sonic cohesion that Off the Wall has. Off the Wall is making a statement about this is what disco is and can be. Um, you know, and it's the greatest disco album ever. But Thriller is more of almost like a greatest hits collection of here's a bunch of different songs that we created over time. I like, uh, I mean, Bad is pretty much bad. Um, Dangerous, to me, is very powerful. There's a lot, there's like five songs on there that I love, where it's almost this futuristic funk. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if memory serves, Teddy Riley really helped him get to another level on a lot of those records. Um, There's a lot of stuff I don't like on there, but I don't count stuff I don't like against you whether you're a recording artist or making movies or writing books or whatever, you, you just didn't score a point. I don't think that, you know, if you, if you release an album with five bangers and seven whack songs, then you're five up and seven down. Like, no, like, mm-hmm. like you made five bangers, right? You just don't, you just didn't score a point with the, uh, you know what I mean? Like if you're playing basketball, you come down and shoot and miss you don't lose a point. You didn't score that didn't time score. Down, the, <laughs> down the court, right? Like you, get the, you get the rebound and you score the next time, you get two or three points or whatever, <laughs> you know, one. So, so, so you know, that, that's more how I look at it. And Dangerous has several of the greatest records of his career to me. Um, but, you know, I think the, I mean, the amount of music that Michael produces in that 80s period is far smaller than what Prince did, which makes the comparison hard. If you were saying Michael made lesser music, but he made better music, which like, you know, he made better music than most of the generation, right? Most of the 80s. So I can't, it doesn't matter that you made more, but Prince made a lot of incredible music. A lot of it, better than Michael's that I would return to more than Michael's. Whereas I continue to be able to listen to Prince and the more and more and more I know about his life. Um, I'm still like, you know, this is, you know, this is a pretty solid person. You know I mean? He made some mistakes, um, of course. you know, in his life, but you know, he's a very, very solid person. But look, look, you know, he's not doing drugs because He's some, you know, wild drug hedonist. Right, he rejects right. doing drugs throughout his life, even as a teenager. When in the early twenties, when most of us are experimenting with drugs, you know, you would think a teenager experimenting with weed or mushrooms or cocaine. He's saying no. He's telling people, you know, if you want to do that shit, you know, Morris Day was open about. It. He's like, I was, a, you know, I was a weed head. You know, and when I, I wanted to get stoned, we left. Prince was like, just don't do that shit around me. <laughs> Jerome, 
who was close with Prince from Minneapolis early on, was like, he would even be like, don't get drunk. When I would order my second drink, he would push it away. Like, you don't need it. Like, let's not get drunk. Like, let's just be straight. You know what I mean? Like, let's just be sober. Um, he gets into opioids because he needs to continue working. Right. Because that's how he can continue to be on the road and in the studio. So his drug use is akin not to the rock star who has it all and is throwing down pills because he's a hedonist. It's akin to the UPS driver, the nurse, the waitress, the factory worker who's like, yo, my back, my knee, my neck, whatever is killing me. But I got to get up and go to work, I gotta um, keep going. take care of my family or I'm going to lose my job. So let me go. And like, yeah, Prince was working at a much higher level of, of wealth. Um, but that's how he saw himself as a working man who went to the studio, Midwestern, going to studio every day. And, you know, you make a car, I'm making a song, you know, at the point when he's doing a lot of opioids, um, you know, this is all I have performing. If I don't perform, I don't have a family. I'm not performing for people. I have nothing. So, you know, how do I maintain my identity, my connection to the world um, by going out and performing? And this is how I'm able to continue physically continuing to do that. But this is a person who was not doing weed, was not doing cocaine, was not doing the normal sort of, you know, things. Absolutely. I'm glad you highlighted that because that was in the book, too. It does, you know, it does address that and it does tell everyone, um, you know, that he was basically doing it to keep going. Um, you know, the everyday grind of studio life, tour life. I mean, it's as we all know, you know, the musicians. But when you're Prince, it's probably a little bit more rapid. You're on the go more than the average musician. So, um, you know, admittedly, you know, that was something I got to learn a lot more about. Again, everyone that's listening to this right now. Please get this book, especially if you're a fan of Prince. If you want to learn more about Prince, like it for my example, where I wanted to learn a little bit more about him, this book is fantastic. Nothing compares to you in oral history of Prince. Torre, the fantastic author of this book and many books. He wrote the biography of Prince, other books as well. Award winning Torre. So, you know, tell everyone too about your awards that you've won as well. What's important is if you read the book and you like it, and you're like, you know, I think this is valuable in my life. I want to read it again or tell my friends about it, share it with other people. You know, that's what matters. I, I don't even really, you know, look at who wins awards. For, you know, obviously we check for, you know, the Nobel Prize, but I'm not checking who won a Pulitzer. I can't tell you who won a Pulitzer or a Caldecott or whatever, but I know what 10 or 15 books are on my shelf that I hold in the highest regard. That I'm like, you know, this this changed my life a little bit, you know, and I love this book. And I, you know, um, you know, when I think about, you know, the work of you know, Isabel Wilkerson and 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 Ralph Ellison and Baldwin and Nicole Hannah Jones and, um, you know, Salman Rushdie and some other folks, you know, uh, you know. So I mean, like, you know, I, I want to just have you. Um, you know, the audience, you, you know, DC, Hendrix, you know, love the book and, you know, to where you, to where you remember where you were sitting when you were reading it. 
right? Like, you know, like that's when you're really in the book when you're like, you know, that's right. I remember right, right in front of my record player. I was reading this book, loving it so much. Right in front of my record player. Remember when I first opened it, right? It was well Whoa. a couple weeks ago. That's why we're doing the interview now, but was sitting right in front of my record player. I was listening to that debut, my favorite, my favorite, my favorite Prince album. Um, but yeah, this book, and I love the interviews as well. Morris Day, um, you know, Des Dickerson, tons of interviews in this book as well. You put a lot of great work and research into this book. So I just wanted to thank you, you know, from coming from me personally, um, you know, cause I got to learn a whole lot as the music historian that I am and how much I love admiring and learning more about music before my time. You did me justice in reading this Prince book. So I thank you for that. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you reading it and uh, appreciate this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. And by the way, love the kids' names. Uh, Hendrix. I I, I got to say, I love the name. I may be biased, but I love it. (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. Thank you so much for talking Prince today. Be safe. Peace and love. All right. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks, brother. I'll talk to you. Time Travel with DC Hendrix on the Music Vibes Podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify on your mobile device. Podcasts by Federated Media.